I'm your host, Vic Choksi, and this is Victory Lab. The premise behind Victory Lap is simple. It's to have on luminaries from the sports, entertainment, and media worlds to talk about their journey, and most notably, one victory that helped them reach their goal. On today's episode, I speak with Steve Delson. Steve has been a New York Times bestselling author, investigative reporter for ESPN Outside the Lines, and he's now transitioned into the PR world by starting his own agency. Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, you know, let's talk about you and your journey. What pushed you towards working in sports? I was kind of a sports fanatic as a kid. I played, you know, basketball and football pretty much year-round. Kind of grew up with a ball in my hands. And uh, I was actually going to go to law school, I thought. And I was in pre-law in college. And I decided to move into sports journalism. And I'll never forget this. I told my dad that I was changing my major. And I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a reporter. Dead silence. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, dead silence. And then years later, of course, when I started to accomplish some things, you know, he was my biggest fan. Yeah. But uh, he was not thrilled at the moment. Um, so, yeah. So it was just kind of like a lifelong love of sports. And I'd also uh, had always been a reader as a kid. You know, right. I, used to read, I used to read Ball Four annually every summer. And, uh, you know, so I, the the combination of sports and liking journalism, uh, you know, made sense for me. What was your first job in, in sports? I made $4.50 an hour at the Indio Daily News, which was a small newspaper in the Palm Springs area. I used to say it was 22 miles and a world away from Palm Springs. <laughs> it was this little agricultural town called Indio. And uh, I was a sports writer for a newspaper and covered a little bit of everything. But one of the nice things was the Lakers used to train in Palm Springs. So I got to interview Magic when I was 22. Wow. Uh, there were a lot of tennis and golf tournaments in Palm Springs. So I got to interview some pros. And, and then I got my next job was at Palm Springs Life Magazine, which was right down the road. And nobody cared what I did. I had a sports column and they didn't really care. <laughs> so I just wrote whatever I felt like writing about. Like I did a profile of Kareem Jabbar and, you know, nobody in Palm Springs cared about Kareem Jabbar, but <laughs> wow. I did. So I wrote about him anyway. So it was, it was good training and it was fun and, you know, didn't make any money, but that's not really the point of your yeah. first job or two, you know, it's to start to learn your craft a little bit. Exactly. So, you know, then fast forward a little bit. Talk to me about becoming a New York Times bestselling author. I know you had a degree in journalism. You know, we talked about that. Was that your goal in college, kind of to, to write books? Or how did that all come about? No, I never really thought about writing books. Um, I was just thinking of a career as a newspaper guy, okay. sports writer. And then I did a magazine piece with John Matuzak. You know, he had a wild life story, and I asked Matuzak if he might be interested in writing a book. And he said, yes, we wrote a book called Cruising with the Twos. That led to some more books, and then I wrote a book with Jim Brown, you know, one of the greatest NFL players of all time. Some people think maybe the greatest. And that was a New York Times bestseller, and I wrote that book when I was 30. And I used to joke after that that I was never intimidated by anybody in the sports industry for the rest of my career, because I wrote a book with Jim Brown when I was 30. 
And if you said something stupid to Brown, particularly about like race relations or, you know, inequality, you know, he would call you on it. He was not a real shy guy. And so being young and writing a book with Brown, it it kind of set me up to be, I won't say fearless, but, you know, there's not too many people in sports who are more intimidating than Brown. And we spent a whole summer together, like three days a week, typically at his house in the Hollywood Hills, you know, just working on the book. It was really a great experience. You know, you had an incredible run with several great books, right? Was there a particular favorite of yours or just, or are they all the same when you're actually the author? No, they're not all the same. You know, you love your kids all the same. That's not a cliche, but you don't (laughs) love your books all the same. I don't think. Yeah. I think my favorite book to this day, I wrote an oral history of firefighters where I interviewed over a hundred firefighters across the United States. And I kind of got out of the way and let them talk about specific calls they went on, you know, some heartbreaking stuff, also their attitudes, you know, towards things. And I wrote that book before 9-11. And 9-11 was when we all really started to appreciate firefighters a lot more. True. So I felt like I was a little bit ahead of the curve and that I shined a light on this industry, you know, before 9-11, before a lot of people were talking about firefighters. And I got incredible feedback. You know, a lot of people said, how did you get that stuff being an outsider? Because firefighters tend to be kind of tight-lipped. And I avoided, you know, BS artists. Like I would ask around. And if there was any hint that somebody was just a big talker and not a doer, I wouldn't interview them. And, And I also picked out people that had been involved in specific events where they saved somebody's life. Um, or they got burned and almost died, Uh, Hurricane Andrew, the Oklahoma City bombing. And then that book led to a documentary on the History Channel, which I co-produced. And it was also used for source material in the fictional movie Ladder 49 with uh, John Travolta and Joaquin Phoenix. So that's probably my favorite book of all time. It was cool because firefighters said, hey, you know, I read this book and, uh, you know, you got it right. And that meant a lot to me. The one that sticks out to me is the Bobby Knight one. You know, let's talk about that. In in Indiana, he's revered, right? It's all of the alarming things he did as a coach kind of get glossed over because he's like a god there. Whereas when you're looking at out of the state, outside of the bubble, people realize he did a lot of eye-raising stuff, some of which you helped bring the light. So, you know, my question is at the time of the release or afterwards, like how was the book received? Did he come after you? Did Indiana fans come after you? Well, this was before journalists were getting just hammered on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part, you know, now you can say the sky's blue and, you know, there's 10 trolls, that are, you know, of course. That rip you, you know, so it was definitely a different climate. Um, he ignored the book, basically, um, which was smart from his, you know, point of view, probably, because if he would have commented on it, that just brings more attention. Sure. But it got really, it got good reviews. And we got a lot. Of, I wrote that with Mark Heisler, who was a NBA writer at the LA Times for years, really good. He's a more fluid writer than I am, but I'm a better reporter. And so I did about 99% of the reporting. And I got a lot of compliments on being able to find new stuff about night, you know, after all these years. Um, there was one story where they opened the season by losing to Butler. And, this, and Butler's in Indiana, and this was before Butler was good. Yeah. And so to lose an opener to Butler was catastrophic. And Knight showed up at practice with a shotgun and said something along the lines of, you know, I'm not a great shot. You know, I might miss you 
SOBs on the first shot, but I'll probably get a couple of you on the second. That was a rumor that was going around for years that I was able to substantiate by talking to two guys who were standing there at the time. But here's the genius of night, you know, co-mingled with the madness. The next game, they upset Kentucky, which was ranked number one in the country. And so you saw in a couple of days this craziness, but then the genius. I mean, can you imagine today if a guy brought a shotgun to practice? I'm pretty sure they'd be canceled. But Knight, you know, everybody was terrified of him. He had a habit of cutting people out of his life if they didn't kiss his ring. You know, he and Krzyzewski didn't talk for years. And he coached Krzyzewski at Army because uh, Krzyzewski didn't show the kind of loyalty to Knight that Knight considered significant enough. He did the same thing with Steve Alford, you know, his mentors. He just cut you out of your, out of your life. And so it was an interesting book. I always found that, you know, when newspaper people interview people in the moment, they don't get too much a lot of times because the athletes or the coaches have to be careful. But I do these books that are more rooted in history. And so I was always pretty good at going back and talking to people years later and kind of getting the stories behind the stories. So and there were a lot of them on night because he was out of control and, you know, got away with a lot of things that a 500 coach never would have got away with. You bring up an interesting point. I wonder if, you know, some of these things even fast forward five or 10 years from when it happened, how it would have been in, you know, today's age for sure, there would be outrage and you would have gotten canceled, but trolls would have came after you too, right? Like Indiana fans and, and just, uh, did you deal with any kind of, uh, you know, kickback from, from the book itself when you dropped it? Not much from that book, but I did a story when I was at Outside the Lines. Uh, you know, Outside the Lines is the news magazine show at ESPN. Yep. A lot of investigative stuff. I did a piece on Penn State. There was a cover-up there pre-Jerry Sandusky. They started to lose, which was unusual. They lost like four out of five years, which had never happened under Joe Paterno. And they made a calculated decision, I think, to start recruiting high school players who had some red flags when they entered the program. And sometimes high school kids with red flags get into college and grow up. And, but these guys, a group of them didn't. And they started beating the hell out of people. They beat up a bunch of students. And Paterno and the athletic department did everything they could to look the other way. And I did an investigative piece where we showed that there was a pattern of violence and a pattern of Paterno sticking his you know, two cents into the uh, investigative process that the school did. And it was pre-Sandusky. So when the Sandusky story dropped, a lot of people went back and looked at our piece because we were already illustrating the culture of secrecy at Penn State. Sure. And the cult-like status of the football team. And it extended to the police department. You know, they were giving these guys slaps on the wrist too. And there were all these Penn State websites, you know, Penn State football websites that went after me. And I would read this stuff. And I, a lot of times I remember thinking, did you even watch the piece? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Some professor there was quoted. And he said, I called him up and I asked him a couple of questions and he wouldn't answer me. So I cut the interview short. It was a complete fabrication. And a couple of months later, there was another professor at Penn State who interviewed me by Skype. It was a journalism class. So it was all these kids at Penn State who were kind of torn because they were all football fans. 
but they were also wanted to be journalists, a lot of them. And I ripped that professor that lied about me in the newspaper to the journalism class. And I found out later that he was speaking like the next week. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I'm one of those like don't start anything, but don't turn the other cheek types. Sure. And so, yeah, the, you know, fans are incredibly protective of their schools. That's why a lot of women, when they accuse, you know, an athlete of sexual violence, just get annihilated on Twitter. Yep. And, you know, as a reporter, when I was talking to women that said they were sexually assaulted, because I did a handful of those pieces, I used to always tell them, think through this before you do an interview with us. You know, talk to your if you have a, a boyfriend or a husband, talk to your parents because there's going to be a backlash. And I thought it was really important to really emphasize that. And never try to convince a survivor to tell their story. Just you know, lay out the pros and the cons and then let them decide if they want to move forward or not. Because it takes a lot of courage uh, because there are a lot of trolls out there and they don't care about anything except whether their team wins. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's, uh, it's sad to see, but that's the reality of it. And you jumped into what I wanted to ask you next is about your ESPN investigative reporter days and outside the lines. How did that then come about after, you know, you being a New York Times bestselling author? How did you get that itch to get into that? Or, or how did that all come about? It was a total fluke. I never thought about TV. I was cranking out books you know, for a lot, for several years, just book after book. And then ESPN launched something called Sports Century. This was kind of like the precursor to that 30 for 30 series that they put together that's still on now. And, that, and basically it was the top 100 athletes of the 20th century. They did profiles of Jim Brown was four. And so I was interviewed because I had written the Brown book. Yep. The guy who did the interview, his name is Mark Shapiro. And he was rocketing up the food chain at ESPN at the time. And he wound up essentially running ESPN. He did the interview. And as soon as it ended, he said, have you ever thought about working in TV? And I said, I haven't. And he said, you might want to give it some thought uh, because you're good on camera. And I remember when the profile of Brown ran, we had some friends over and they interviewed some people like David Halberstam, Dick Schaap. And I remember telling the people in my house, you know, don't blink because you might miss me. <laughs> yeah. And I wound up being all over it, which surprised me a lot. And so basically after Shapiro said that, I got a job at Fox Sports for a year. They used to have a magazine type show. And then after a year, I sent four or five pieces to Shapiro. And I said, just tell me the truth. Am I even close? And he said, yeah. And he kicked me over to Outside the Lines. I went there. I got interviewed by like 10 people in one day. And we were walking out to the, my car. And one of the guys, Jimmy Cohn, said, you know, you seem like a pretty serious guy. You wrote all these books. You know, why were you working at Fox? And I said, because I was trying to get the ESPN, <laughs> which I just pulled out of my behind, frankly. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it was a good answer at the moment. Not that there was anything wrong with Fox, but outside the lines was considered a more serious, you know, endeavor. Yep. Um, so I just stumbled into it. My first producer wrote my first story, and then I wrote every script myself for the next 16 years. And I know you won a Peabody for the story you did on the NFL's concussion crisis, right? You were nominated for an Emmy for the Joe Paterno story that you talked about a little bit. You 
covered a lot of stories during your time there. Was there one that was more memorable than others or do any of the other stories stick out to you? The Paterno piece was memorable because I didn't expect Paterno to do a sit-down interview. And he did. After a lot of back and forth, we went there. It was pretty tense. And at one point, he said, we did a lot of research. You know, we studied, we, we, we pulled a lot of data, police records, you know, convictions, arrests, plea bargains, innocent. And he was surprised by how much research we had done. And at one point, he just stared at me and said, you know, you got a nice looking witch hunt going on here. So, uh, and I thought that was kind of a badge of honor until I talked to a local reporter there a couple of months later and he said Paterno would accuse, you know, reporters of a witch hunt like once a day. <laughs> you know? So that piece was memorable. I interviewed a, a, a girl that was a, uh, in high school, come from a, a, a water polo family, but her high school didn't have a girls team. So she not only played on the boys team, she started one. Of, there was a guy on another team who sexually assaulted her under the water. There was no evidence, you know, because there was no camera. You could hear her scream, but she felt like the cops kind of dismissed her. She felt like the kids school blew her off. And I think, you know, we had enough documentation um, where we felt comfortable going with the piece. And I think it was very cathartic for her because she felt like somebody was listening finally. Yeah. And that piece meant a lot to me because I talked to her, you know, her mom afterwards. And she said, you know, that was like an important piece of her life because she had been really traumatized. I remember the alleged perpetrator's father called me and tried to talk me out of doing the story. Wow. That was a memorable story and an unusual story. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure you have a ton of those kinds of stories too, just throughout your career. And, you know, so we touched a little bit about being an author, ESPN. Let's talk about the movie made a couple of years ago, right? And that's where I first met you. You know, you stepped away from the media space and, and started your own PR company. What brought about that change in your path? I was part of the massive layoffs at ESPN in the spring of 2017, I believe it was. You know, yep. They laid off 100 journalists in 24 hours. I and it was, all, it was all over the news that it was coming. People knew there were layoffs, but nobody knew who was going to be let go. And I thought I was safe. I was nervous, but I thought I was safe because my career was still humming along. Uh, just three weeks prior to that, I did a big piece on a cover-up at a very famous hockey high school, a boarding school that had covered up a serial sexual molester. It was a big piece. The survivors had never done an interview before. I got two of the survivors to go on camera. It was a really good piece. Um, and then I also won an award on a Tuesday for a piece on a New York giant who was found to have CTE after he died at age 27. So I won a journalism award on a Tuesday and I got laid off on Wednesday. Wow. Like literally, literally the next day. The only upside was I didn't go to Las Vegas for the award ceremony because I probably would have come back home to California a little hungover and <laughs> then got the call that I was laid off. Yeah. Worse. So, you know, I was shocked. People were already getting laid off. You know, some pretty big names, Tom Ferry, Andy Katz. Uh, Ed Werder, you know, a lot of like really strong journalists getting let go. Yep. And people were starting to tweet about it already, you know, especially East Coasters and I'm on the West Coast. So around 930 in the morning, 
I got a phone call and I saw it was a Bristol phone number, 860 Bristol, Connecticut, but it wasn't a number that I recognized, like one of my bosses. Sure. And I kind of knew and I picked up the phone. It was a three minute phone call after 16 years. There was an HR person on the phone. You know, I'm sure she wished she could be anywhere but there. And it was one of my bosses who I rarely dealt with, didn't respect that much. I just thought he was more of a, just a company man, not really a journalist. He was not part outside the lines, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he said, you know, you'll be paid for the rest of your contract, you know, which was huge. And I made him repeat that. You know, the reporter and me kind of kicked in. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. So towards, <laughs> towards the end of the conversation, I said, so I'm going to be paid for the rest of my contract. Like, and he said, yeah. And so I humped the phone. I was shocked. I remember I called my wife and I said, she was at work. I said, don't come home. I'm fine. And she was like, that's BS. You're not fine. She came home. I was in shock. And then I tried to get another like network journalism job. Couldn't find it. Got offered a couple of decent journalism jobs, but I would have had to move across the country. Didn't really want to do that. Decided to move into public relations out of self-preservation. I had never thought about it ever, but I knew that a certain amount of journalists had made that move. Yep. Um, and I was obsessed with getting a full-time job. And I interviewed with like a hundred different PR people, you know, partly just to pick their brain and network. Sometimes it was a job interview. Finally get offered a full-time job in LA, big crisis PR firm. Took about 10 months of talking, but by the time they offered me the job, they had signed Harvey Weinstein as a client. Oh, wow. And I couldn't do it. You know, I wouldn't have had anything to do with Weinstein. They would have brought me in to beef up their sports practice. You know, you don't have a PR rookie working with a Harvey Weinstein type crisis. Yeah, yeah. But I still felt like I couldn't do it. And so I turned them down. They got rid of Weinstein right after that. But I still, you know, that was the decision I made. It was bizarre, frankly, because I had been obsessed with getting a full-time job. Yeah. And about a month after that, I said to my wife, I'm going to stop begging people for a full-time job and I'm going to open my own shop. Completely buffet. I mean, I'd never done PR. You know, most people yeah. that open up their own shop, they worked at Edelman or Ketchum or Rogers and Collins for five years. Sure, of course. You know, yeah. I just created it out of the blue. Um, had no clue if I could pull it off. Zero. And so far, you know, it's going a little better, a little faster, you know, than I expected. So just happenstance, basically. And, you know, reinvention, you know, which is a lot of people I think are going to need to reinvent themselves, you know, post-COVID, you yep. know, because there's going to be jobs that are lost and industries that are hurt, but there's going to be other jobs and other industries that emerge. You know, people can take a skill set, try to plug it into a different career, maybe. And I think people that are able to adapt, you know, may have a good chance of landing on their feet even if they lost a job. I'm not diminishing how emotional and difficult it is to lose a job, but it can also be fixed. I was devastated when I lost my job and I was scared. But ultimately, when you got to get through the fear and you got to keep fighting because what else is there to do? Exactly. No, that's great advice. And fast forward a couple of years later, it, 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 everything's going well. You know, it wasn't what you were expecting. Are you happy with the pivot now? Are you happy you got into the PR space? Yeah, I like it. I mean, my running joke is, I like it most days. My running joke is I'm still a reporter at heart, masquerading as a publicist. <laughs> but it works because I'm dealing with reporters every day. Yeah. You know, I'm poking stories. 
the other thing that's huge is because I run my own shop, I decide who I work with. And so I don't work with jerks ever. I've turned down probably seven to 10 clients because I didn't want to be associated with them. I don't spin reporters ever under any circumstances. I won't do it. And so I'm kind of on the positive side of PR. I'm typically representing people that want to, are working for a good cause. That's like my ideal situation. Yep. Um, or some, a lawyer maybe who's working with victims um, who wants to raise their profile. And so I'm not the type of PR person that's going to try to hide things. I just won't do it. Um, and the key is just not signing creeps that are clients. And I kind of consider myself more of a facilitator. Like I help reporters do their stories because I connect them with legitimate experts that they can interview. And then simultaneously, my clients get a higher public profile, which can lead hopefully to more business for them. So being able to decide who I work with and being very, very stringent about what I'm willing to do ethically is huge. The other thing that was a big game changer was when I realized that good people or good causes can benefit from publicity just as much as you know jerks uh, can benefit from PR. Sure. That was very important. And so I'm trying, I'm very proactively trying to move into more of social justice, racial justice, politics. Not that that's the cleanest industry in the world. It just sounds a little corny, but as a reporter at Outside the Lines in particular, I was able to make a difference with a number of my stories and have a positive impact on the world. And I'm trying to do the exact same thing uh, working in public relations. I will say to our listeners that every interaction I've had with you over the past couple of years, those are the kind of stories that we've talked about. So, you know, it's not a bunch of BS that you're, you're kind of doing a PR spiel on anybody listening. So, you know, all the, all of the emails and all the interactions we have are always really fun, positive stories. And, and, you know, that's what I always love about our interactions as well. So, you know, look, looking back on everything, right. Uh, Your whole path, your whole journey, is there one victory, small or large, that you can look back on and, and think that it helped you get to where you are today? I think probably the firefighter book, because I was told that an outsider might not be able to crack that group of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I was pretty young when I wrote it. It got a starred review in Publishers Weekly, which is hard to get. And then I was told that there were fire academies that was using that book in their academies, because it was very different than the more nuts and bolts training type books. And so I think that book was probably the most relevant, significant book that I wrote. And then, like I said earlier, you know, it turned into a documentary on the History Channel. There was that movie with John Travolta where they used it for source material. Um, They tried to use the source material without telling me. I I found out by accident that they had lifted stuff from the book and put it into the movie. And I kind of bluffed them into paying me (laughs) or threatened a lawsuit. But the funny thing was it belonged to Disney at the time and I was working for ESPN. And so I, if I would have sued Disney, I would have been fired from ESPN in a minute. So I I actually had zero leverage, but I don't think they did their homework. And so so they cut me a check, but probably the firefighter book, I think to this day 
I love it. Everyone has that one moment, right? And that's why I always try to ask people what, what that moment is for them to help catapult them. And, you know, so it's been fun talking to you, but, you know, before we wrap it up, I always like to do a little fun rapid fire Q&A with my guests. So uh, whatever comes to mind, it, you know, very, very for fun. Hopefully the trolls don't, you know, come at you uh, on Twitter, but best pizza, Chicago or New York? Chicago. Favorite book growing up? Cause I know you're an avid reader. All four. Any piece of advice to someone trying to break into the sports industry? Yeah, network like crazy because um, you never know who's going to help you get a job. Um, and one very specific advice is make a list of all the organizations that you might want to work for. And then as you network, especially if it's somebody you feel comfortable with, ask them if they know anybody in that organization. And if so, if they'd be comfortable making an introduction. But you got to network like crazy. And, and you'll be amazed. People are so willing to help. There's so many people out there that are willing to help. And a lot of times, that's how you'll get your job. It's, it's through somebody that knows somebody. Even if they don't have hiring power, they may know somebody else. And you got you, you to gotta do that. Even if you're shy, yeah. um, you need to network. It's really, really important. And then someday, you know, you'll do somebody a solid, you know, you know, that's what makes the world go around. That's great advice. And last question. So you've been through it all. You, you've seen it all. You've done it all. Craziest thing that's ever happened to you throughout your whole journey. We were doing a story once on professional athletes and strip clubs at Outside the Lines. I have no idea why we were doing that story, <laughs> yeah. but we tried to do it in a journalistic way. And we were at this really famous strip club in Atlanta that got really crazy at night. And we were there during the day before it was crazy. And I was interviewing the manager. There was like two people in there. And we looked over and this freelance camera guy was getting a lap dance. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was with a young, I was a reporter. I was with a young producer. And I said, you better get a, get a hold of your guy here. <laughs> I like, love it. That, if that happened today, yeah. you know, that'd be on Twitter, you know, four seconds later. <laughs> of course. I, won't, I will not provide any more details. And probably I think I already regret saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's been great, Steve. Thank you so much for your time. It, it, I will definitely be posting this soon. And before we jump off, let people know, you know, if they want to check you out, what the website is or how they can get a hold of you for future so the name of the firm is delson strategies and the website is just delson.com and that's d-e-l-s-o-h-n.com if you want to go there and check it out uh that would be great perfect well thanks again for your time steve we'll be i'll be talking to you soon all right Vic. great to talk with you My thanks again to Steve Delson for joining me today. If you need PR help, definitely check out his website at Delson Strategies. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to give us a like or a follow and share the word with your friends. We'd really appreciate that. And last but not least, you can follow my work at DocSquad33 on Twitter or VicChoxy33 on Instagram. Thank you again for listening. I'll see you next time on Victory Lab.